Welcome to McCormick Speaks, brought to you by the McCormick Graduate School of Policy and Global Studies at UMass Boston, committed to student success in an equitable world, and heard exclusively on WUMB. For season three, we continue in-depth public interest conversations, including inequality, urban research programs, education in the 21st century, U.S.-Africa relations, public service and policy careers, and more. Today, part two of our interview with Councilwoman Tanya Fernandez-Anderson. Welcome again to season three of McCormick Speaks. I'm Rita Kikiadozi. I'm here with our distinguished guest, Councilwoman Tanya Fernandez-Anderson, and uh, this is part two of our conversation. I'd like to get to the heart of the matter. You have visited us on campus during uh, a Black History Month, and the title of your lecture is riveting and fascinating. I'm getting so many calls. It's called Apologizing for Boston's Role in the Transatlantic Slave Trade, a Case Study in Restorative Justice and Policy Action. So I'm going to um, dedicate the rest of the interview to questions about Resolution um, 0770, Acknowledging, Condemning, and Apologizing for Slavery in Boston. So let me ask you a few uh, questions about it. The resolution is titled, and I'd like to read it because I resonated on every single word, and I know my students will as well. The City of Boston in City Council resolution to acknowledge, condemn, and apologize for the role played by the City of Boston in the transatlantic slave trade and the ongoing detrimental impacts experienced by the black people of Boston. The resolution denounces the historical practices of slavery aided and abetted by the city government of Boston. It also expresses its deepest and most sincere apology for the city's connection and responsibility uh, to the transatlantic slave trade, the death, misery, and deprivation that the practice has caused. So I'd like to ask you a very simple question. Why is it necessary to apologize for Boston's role in the transatlantic slave trade? When a wrong is, has been done or committed, especially one as egregious and historically significant as a transatlantic slave trade, it is morally imper imperative that we apologize for it. Before you can repair a wrong, you must acknowledge that a wrong has occurred. And it's time for this apology to take place. We can't apologize yesterday, and we couldn't wait until tomorrow. We have work to do. And if you don't go back to the root and explore the rot that is festering in our city because of it, you will come up with, as Fred Hampton said, solutions that do not solve before any reconciliation, or there must be reconciliation, there must, there must be truth in order for, it to have, for you to have reconciliation. And the issues right now that I'm facing with uh, the city is coordinating a time to do it, whether they apologize or we all coordinate this um, ceremony before the Reparations Commission can make a recommendation or after. 
I say before, immediately, expeditiously, <laughs> as soon as possible. <laughs> and I say, do it right, right? So I'm working with the city currently to figure out what um, or how that will take place. So this is a bill that passed. How did you... Um you know, get that to happen. I mean, <laughs> and, and what were, you know, this is unlike the hijab day <laughs> bill, uh, where you had a lot of resistance. Why do you think that you had so much support for this one? You are a very astute woman. That is a very good question. On the day that it was going to take place that I filed, I didn't, I didn't think it was, what, I didn't think about whether it was the right time or I thought about everyone on the council and whether or not we have the right council to vote on it. I then said, oh well, go big or go home. We file it. And if they're brave enough, let them stand up and vote. Let them show their true colors. And so literally, I put no thought into as far as holding off, thinking about it, strategizing. No, just put it on the table and let Boston see what this council is made of. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the resolution is not just rhetorical. That's what I love about it. It p pledges to commit towards actions, policy actions. It includes the following that I thought was really uh, fascinating. Removing prominent anti-black symbols in Boston while developing opportunities to build structures that reflect racial repair and uh, reconciliation. So now that Dudley Square has been renamed Nubian Square, that's where I live, what are the major anti-black uh, symbols that uh, continue to need to be removed? I do have to take a, a moment and thank uh, Reverend Dr. Kevin Peterson and many of the advocates that came together to make this uh, resolution so thoughtful, who have been organizing and doing the work for a very long time. With every time I do uh, something like this, uh, or I put something, file something like this uh, on racial equity or of the like, I have to make statements to thank my ancestors, but thank my, I always say, my far distant cousins, the African American or the black indigenous people of America that have paved the way for us black African immigrants to come in. It's important that we it's important that we acknowledge the people that have been doing the work on the ground, but it's also important for us to have the conversations very honestly about how black Americans have paved the way, but they have cried and they have given their blood, sweat, and tears. And for us to be here, they have produced a culture that literally have saves lives. And we come and we benefit from that. We enjoy it and we uh, build opportunities off of it. I'm, I apologize for having to deter your question a little bit to that. Um, but as far as the symbols, Faneuil Hall is a perfect one. Yeah. Dudley Street is another. The Lincoln's statue is another. There are many, yeah. so many and people would say oh what's the problem it's part of our culture and that happened yesterday and what's the matter can't you get over it <laughs> what do you mean take a people and create a brand new country and then time that so technically 
The black Americans have had their country, technically, if you say that maybe from the 70s, not so much, that's when it began to kind of normalize, where they actually started treating people like human. Even today with mass incarceration, redlining, um, I can name a few, several uh, policies that they put in place. You mean to tell me that just 50 years is enough to establish civilization and government and everything else? No. So, no, we can't get over it. It happened yesterday. My grandmother talks about it. My cousins talk about it. Everybody knows. It's in my blood. It's in your DNA. You act like it. I feel it viscerally. My babies die from it. We die 30 years in Roxbury sooner than Back Bay because of your systems, because you perpetuate this, because you still benefit, because you still have the money of the work that we put in or that they put in. Either way, black people everywhere in the world experience this. The harm has been done. Now let's have the difficult conversations. Let You should apologize. You should eradicate everything that symbolizes the harm and the hate. And we should be, be able to hopefully begin to heal together. Well, let, well let's continue with um, the notion of healing. The resolution pledges to elucidate and educate Bostonians on the history of the transatlantic slave trade and the ways it occurred and impacted Boston's past and present systems of oppression. It commits uh, to creating a registry of truth and reconciliation uh, so that Bostonians who wish to express regret for the past injustices can express their remorse. I've, I've been a, um, I'm currently an interim dean, but I've been a professor of um, African affairs <laughs> and have taught African history. And, you know, I've been really, you know, sort of shocked at uh, the notion that uh, some of my college students do not know the real history of transatlantic slave trade and don't understand it as an American history not just an African history. So I resonate with um, that uh, pledge as well. But, but given the trend, though, you know, in Florida, I'm going to call out Florida and some other southern states uh, who have become anti-critical race theorists and banning courses on African-American history and banning books on black culture and literature. Uh, how does Boston achieve you know, this commitment that you have pledged in Resolution 0770? We achieve it by working toward the goals we have set in this regard. I introduced this resolution to help guide this work. Words without the following work may make us feel good, but they are not enough. The words, however, are important, and as they help to set the narrative and to create a climate that is more conducive to the racial justice work we seek to practice. Additionally, on a basic level, we achieve it by pulling money and resources in the hands of black and brown people. We achieve it by properly funding our schools. We achieve it by getting our people out of prison. We do it by getting mental health support to the masses in our communities. We do it by creating holistic, interconnected set of policies and programs that speak to the collective needs of black and brown people and working class people. And I like to say that we also do it by doing our own internal work. There's, there have been a lot of harm done and this has uh, been passed down generation to generation. And 
this means that we ourselves are depraved. We ourselves are afraid of losing our livelihood or our political or capital or social capital or uh, careers. Uh, so we allow tokenism, we allow patronage as though it can replace uh, the harm. And we know it's not enough because paying a few or electing or hiring a diverse staff is simply not enough and because there are thousands of people that rely on us and on the change. Let me speak to um, the policy questions a bit more because um, we're a policy school here and a public affairs school. And one of the you know really beautiful things about um, your visit to us here is the fact that you're not just representational, you're an embodiment of policy action. And so the resolution of vows to dedicate policies, I love that about it, it vows to dedicate policies and efforts to repair past and present harm done to black Americans through the systemic racism in various realms of city life. And you name housing, healthcare, education, and the workplace. And so I ask you if you could elaborate on you know, what kinds of policies will emerge from the bill you know, around housing, healthcare, education, and workplace uh, to have impact on Resolution um, 0770. Housing is essential. We have become the second most expensive city to rent in uh, after New York City, and what is not a sustainable situation of our communities. We need more affordable homeownership opportunities. We need to stop catering our development policies to the rich and center the needs of the poor, working, and middle classes of all backgrounds, particularly our black and brown folks, right? To this end, I have also introduced a rent-to-own pilot program that, ha that I hope will grow and become a model program that will enable our people to own their own homes and build generational wealth. For healthcare, I am currently working on trying to bring a health clinic to Nubian Square that will address the community's health needs in a holistic manner. We need more of an emphasis on the access to mental health support, addiction counselors, and uh, social workers. We need to implement non-Western and natural medicine and herbal offerings alongside the traditional Western models of medicine. An emphasis on both nutrition and exercise as, is, as needed, as well as the continued effort to combat the environmental racism uh, endemic in our city through zoning buildings made with hazardous materials and in other areas. For education and workforce, we need them to be places of dignity for all concerned. We need our students to be educated in a cultural sens culturally sensitive and relevant matter by teachers who look like um, and can relate to them. We need our young to, uh, to learn the true history of Asia, Africa, Latin America, the places where most of our students are from. Our schools need resources and our school buildings need to be repaired and maintenance with proper heating, air conditioning, as well as having clean air, well-maintained bathrooms, libraries, uh, gyms, and more. 
as far as our workplaces, we need to be places where um, or be in places where workers can earn a living wage to be treated with respect and dignity. We need to support our working class as it fights to unionize and obtain better benefits. There is an old uh, union line that goes, an injury to one is an injury to all. And we need to act like we believe in that each and every day. When it comes to violence in our communities, especially uh, gun violence in black and brown communities, the reactionary approach is always social services or that we need to teach people to not be violent. Well, naturally, we're not violent people. We come from lands of abundance. We come from richness. We are people who are, have been restricted. And naturally, as human beings, we uh, are people who need to our social determinants of life to, or of health to be sustained. And so I think that the more proactive or preventative way of approaching this is to invest in the social determinants of health of our citizens. And so when we talk about policies that can support this or, can, or that can prevent or, uh, violence or fight gun violence, we have to invest, again, in housing. We have to invest in workforce development, in education, in our health, uh, in order for us to prevent these issues. What is causing it is that there is a disinvestment in these communities, in our social determinants of health, that which perpetuate all of this. The reason why we, uh, the city determined racism as a public health crisis is because literally we're not investing in the health of our people. My last question then, the racism is a public health problem, and I didn't say that. The Boston Public Health Commission said that and um, pledged also to commit to addressing the impact that racism has on the lives of um, all of our neighbors and how it impacts uh, the overall health of our residents. You know, I say this for our public affairs and public service students who don't always, you know, understand the connection between uh, public health and um, racism. But Resolution uh, 0770 calls also for the commitment to use all of the city's resources, including its offices and departments of human services, business and culture to engage in activities um, that alleviate anti-black institutional racism within city governmental and across um, the personal and public realms of Boston. So, you know, finally, can you uh, elaborate on this, this question of showing us how uh, the many public service education students at McCormick convincing them uh, of why racism is a public health problem. Thank you. First, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention my counselor colleague, uh, Ricardo Royo for actually filing to acknowledge this in the city of Boston, that racism is a public health crisis. And also a uh, big shout out to Dr. Bisola Ojikutu, who is phenomenal in creating this framework um, and is working diligently to ensure that uh, we reach results. Racism is a public health, or as a public health program, because it, it insinuates itself into every facet of life. 
because of racism, black people are more likely to live in poverty, live in crowded apartments, exist in congested and polluted neighborhoods, die younger, be a victim of police brutality, go to prison, not have health care, and more. Racism is so embedded in the political and economic structures of our society that when we struggle against it, we are actually working against all the forces of inequality that pervade our city. In short, when we free black people, we will have freed everyone because of the foundational role of anti-blackness and white supremacy within the systems and structures of our city. So let's do it because at the end of the day, freedom is the essential ingredient that we all need to sustain ourselves. What a fascinating, enriching, enthralling, <laughs> informative, um, and inspiring conversation with you, Councilwoman Tanya Fernandez-Anderson. Uh, Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Professor. I appreciate what you do here and making space for me to be here, a non-traditional or uh, unorthodox uh, politician. I ask that you pray for me that I am doing the right thing, and I look forward to more work with you. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. Next week on McCormick Speaks, a conversation with Barry Bluestone, founding McCormick PhD in public policy and Northeastern University founding dean of public policy. Coming from Detroit, Michigan, I was a little surprised when I arrived in 1971 to find a city that was really in quite great trouble. I always thought of Boston because I thought of Harvard and MIT and UMass and Northeastern and Boston University. But it had lost a tremendous amount of population. It had been 801,000 in 1950. When I arrived in 71, it was 560,000. Of course, it's been rebuilding, but still smaller than back in 1950. And one of the problems that arose very quickly was, was housing. We had tremendous segregation of housing at the time. We didn't have enough affordable housing. People were leaving because there weren't enough jobs at the time. And then with the biotech revolution, the expansion in medical care in all of our hospitals, the expansion in higher education, Boston comes back to the point today where it's one of the great cities of the United States. But it has a serious housing problem. Its housing rents are now second in the country after San Francisco, ahead of New York City. And that means that people cannot come here, uh, to, can't afford to live here. And it means that we're losing population. And we can't bear to do that because we need the skilled workforce. So there's a whole bunch of ideas that have been put forward, some of them by our wonderful Mayor Wu, to deal with the housing problem. One of them that I helped create way back about 20 years ago with my friend Eleanor White and Ted Carmen was a law that's on the books called Chapter 40R. And what it says is communities agree uh, to set aside land for housing where at least 30% of the housing could be affordable. The state would actually provide extra revenue to that town or city. Uh, and in addition to that, would also provide additional revenue for their school system if young people moved in with kids. And that helped some of our communities, 31 of them, including one 40R community in Boston, to start building some affordable housing. There is new laws on the book that we have to try and encourage cities that are serviced by the MBTA to provide housing near and proximate to MBTA uh, stations. 
Mayor Wu has come up with a very controversial plan for rent control. And for most of my career as an economist, I thought most rent control laws might help in the short run to keep rents from rising, but would harm the city in the long run because it would keep developers from building new housing. I have, and I'm one of the few economists to come out in favor of Mayor Wu's gentle rent control because it allows developers to come in without uh, forcing rent control on them for at least the 15 years. And um, it also allows landlords to still raise rents in accord with inflation, in accord with some of their costs. So I'm one of the few economists who's supporting. I hope she can get it through the city council. It's a controversial issue. We have to make sure there's not predatory lending. We need to do, when I first came, the banks had red lines. They would only loan to black families within certain districts that were already majority black. We were able to fight that and stop that. And now we have uh, more of our communities becoming integrated in race and ethnicity. So there's still a lot more that can be done uh, to encourage housing uh, and encourage affordable housing. We also have to make sure that the new housing and some of our older housing stock uh, deals with climate change. So we want them to be uh, green housing and include more and more solar and other technologies. But there's more that we can do. I'm thrilled that Mayor Wu has uh, really taken this on as one of the major uh, goals she has of making sure we have housing for everyone who wants to live in Boston, and particularly getting to the point where housing will not be so expensive so we can bring people here to fill the many openings in the economy we have, many job openings. Rents are so high here that we need to be able to at least stabilize rents, keep them from rising as quickly as they have, uh, but we need to do that in such a way that it doesn't prevent developers from building new housing. And I think she's basically been able to deal with rent control or rate st rent stabilization in a way that will help stabilize rents a little bit without keeping, without stopping developers from building new housing. And some of other laws that she's pushing gives benefits to developers who are developing the kind of housing we need. So she's addressing, I think, what might be the number one problem in Boston, the high cost of living driven by the high cost of housing. And if we can deal with that, Boston has an even greater future uh, than its present. This has been McCormick Speaks, brought to you by the McCormick Graduate School of Policy and Global Studies at UMass Boston and WUMB. 